0: In March of 2008, Bear Stearns found itself in a great deal of financial difficulty. They were unable to borrow money to cover the promises they had made. And to prevent any consequences from that occurring, the Fed, Federal Reserve, and the U.S. Treasury brokered a deal with J.P. Morgan Chase where by guaranteeing about thirty billion dollars worth of Bear Stearns assets that J.P. Morgan Chase did not feel comfortable acquiring or finding out quickly whether they were worth acquiring those assets. Uh, the government got J.P. Morgan Chase to honor Bear Stearns to acquire Bear Stearns and honor their promises to their creditors, lenders, and others. That was in March of two thousand and eight. It was really a unprecedented set of activities by the Fed, it was deemed crucial, necessary, and unavoidable. Without a lot of evidence, but uh, there was a great deal of uncertainty and fear about what would happen if Bear Stearns were allowed to go bankrupt, and their creditors would then not be getting the money that they expected to get, and so on. And so the Fed and the Treasury justified that intervention on grounds of stability, uh, stability that lasted until September of 2008 when things really went haywire uh, Fannie and Freddie collapsed. Lehman Brothers collapsed. AIG collapsed. Uh, the government stepped in in Citibank as well uh, when it was into crisis. The government stepped in, in in the case of all those institutions other than Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers was allowed to go bankrupt, and that set in motion a great deal of anxiety and uncertainty in markets. Uh, and we found ourselves in the middle of what is now called the financial crisis of 2008. Watching that, uh, and you've been listening along with me as I've been thinking about these issues, watching that crisis and its aftermath that we're still in the middle of, not really an aftermath yet, uh, I realized I realized this in March of 2008, and I certainly realized it more strongly in September of 2008, that I really didn't know much about modern Wall Street uh, or the housing market, the role that Fannie and Freddie played, and the significance of their collapse. So I embarked on a a bunch of reading and a bunch of listening through EconTalk, which you've been a part of if you've been following along, to try to understand what what happened. Uh, In September 2008, as things were uh, going crazy, I interviewed Arnold Kling on how Fannie and Freddie worked. I confess I hadn't paid any attention to Fannie and Freddie. Uh, I knew they had something to do with, with home ownership and the mortgage market, but I didn't know much about them. And that was the beginning. That conversation with Arnold was the beginning of my education in what had gone wrong and how these institutions worked. Since then, I've done 13 podcasts or so, maybe, maybe a few more. It depends how you define them, but we've done a whole bunch of – Interviews with people on the crisis uh, where basically it was a way for me and I hope you to get some insight into how these two worlds worked, the world of Wall Street and investment banks and housing markets and Fannie and Freddie and government policy in that area and how these two worlds interacted to create the crisis. So if you've been listening, I hope you've learned a lot along the way as, as I have. I, I was so interested in and I – I could have done a podcast every week on the crisis. I was so thirsty to figure out what had gone wrong and and to understand it better. I figured you probably weren't as interested as I was. So I tried to mix up those podcasts on the crisis with, with others, which I still find, of course, interesting as well. And after uh, a while, I, I had some ideas on what had happened uh, that, that I didn't see being talked about in, in much detail out in the world. So – I wrote a lengthy paper. It's about 17,000 words, about 40 pages or so, uh, depending on how you count pages, or maybe closer to 80 for if it were a book. It's sort of a mini-book a, a mini, mini book on the crisis, and it's now available at the Mercatus Center website, mercatus.org. They've printed a paper version of it, and you can read it on the web, either in HTML form or PDF. Uh, the paper is called... Gambling with Other People's Money, How Perverted Incentives Caused the Crisis, Uh, we'll put a link up to the paper, and uh, you can easily find it by Googling Russ Roberts gambling or Russ Roberts crisis. Now, what I want to do in this podcast is – give you some flavor of the basic arguments that I advance in that paper, but I want to do more than that. I also want to talk about some of the issues that we've been discussing here over the last year or two that are more general, the elusiveness of truth, economics as ex-post-narrative, uh, the role of bias, and so on. And I'll try to weave these themes into my remarks as I go along. So let's turn to the uh, the crisis. People have proposed a lot of potential causes for the crisis. Uh, there's a commission that's investigating... Uh, Over 20 causes. Uh, The Congressional Research Service listed, I think, 26 causes of the crisis to be investigated. And if you've been paying attention all, you've heard a bunch of these. Uh, They include mark-to-market accounting, Fannie and Freddie, the Community Reinvestment Act, monetary policy, tax policy, deregulation, misregulation, too big to fail. There's a whole bunch of different causes, and there's a tendency to have a little bit of what I think of as the blind man and the elephant problem, which is, you have these blind men around the elephant, and you ask, what's the elephant like? And one blind man's got his arms around one of the elephant's legs, and he says, the uh, elephant's like a column or a pillar, and someone else is holding the elephant's side. And he says, no, an elephant's like a wall. Someone else has the elephant's tail. He says, no, the elephant's, the, the elephant's like, a, like a rope. So there's a tendency to take the issue that you are most knowledgeable about and blame everything on that. And so there are a lot of competing narratives out there for what caused the crisis. They're all... Uh, relevant in the sense that they all have something to do with it. But I was curious about more fundamental causes. What are the – not just the things that contributed to the crisis. Is there an underlying cause or causes that without these, it wouldn't have happened at all? Not just it would it would have been a little bit worse or it wouldn't have been as bad, but these are the causes that that without these, it wouldn't have happened at all. And I, I want to first start with a, a quote uh, from Paul Samuelson, which I think is the alternative view to mine, and here's the Samuelson quote, and and he said this in an interview, um, and all these, these quotes that I'm going to give you are, are in the paper, and you can read them and find the sources and get your own take on the context and so on. Here's what Samuelson said. To, and today we can see how utterly mistaken was the Milton Friedman notion that a market system can regulate itself – we see how silly the Ronald Reagan slogan was that government is the problem, not the solution. This prevailing ideology of the last few decades has now been reversed. Everyone understands now, on the contrary, that there can be no solution without government. Now, this is – end of quote. Now, this is a stark view. Uh, it's widely held by some economists that what we've learned from the crisis, the underlying cause, was capitalism. It was markets. It was the way that – uh, risk-taking was out of control. Without regulation, firms just couldn't make wise decisions, and as a result, we need government regulation to impose some stability and, and uh, normalcy to, to markets. And even so-called, and I emphasize so-called, even so-called market economists such as Alan Greenspan have been sympathetic to this view. Greenspan, when he testified in, before Congress, uh, I think the first time in the aftermath of the crisis, not recently. And by the way, today, I'm sorry, today is uh, May 11th, 2000, or May 12th, 2010 is when I'm making this recording. Um, Alan Greenspan, in his first testimony, said, quote, I made a mistake in presuming that the self-interest of organizations specifically banks and others, were such as that they were best capable of protecting their own shareholders and their equity in the firms. He said then, he went on to say, referring, according to the article, this was an article in the New York Times, referring to his free market ideology, Mr. Greenspan added, quote, I have found a flaw. I don't know how significant or permanent it is, but I have been very distressed by that fact. So in the Greenspan view... Uh, We used to think, we naively thought, that markets were self-regulating, that firms looking out for their own self-interest would be guided as if by an invisible hand to serve the needs of society. But in fact, as Samuelson claims, that doesn't work. That does not lead to stability and good things. It leads to collapse, crisis, disaster. And therefore, we need government to make sure that that doesn't happen. Uh, so for me, the fundamental question is, is Samuelson and to some extent Greenspan, are they right about markets? Is it true that markets can't, quote, regulate themselves? And you know, by regulate themselves, I don't mean anarchy versus uh, government uh, heavy-handed regulation. The question is just on this issue. Forget about property rights. Forget about contracts. There are lots of things I think people on the left and the right uh, in different poles of ideology could agree on are probably good things for government. But the fundamental question I want to look at and that I think is going to be the fundamental question of the next 10, 20, 30 years as people grapple with the crisis is were we wrong to believe, as many of us did, were we wrong to believe that markets are self-regulating or – Were we right and something else caused the the disaster? So to me, the fundamental question is it's not do we need government or no government. The fundamental question is what should the role of government be? Does it need to be ensuring that there is stability in financial markets? And I would add in housing markets where we saw this enormous run-up in housing and then a collapse, which seems to contradict the Friedman view – that markets can take care of themselves certainly seems to contradict the Hayekian view that prices and markets communicate information rather than just speculatory, speculate, speculative uh, fever and, and irrational exuberance. So that, to me, is the fundamental question of the crisis. What do we conclude from the fact that stuff went haywire? Does it prove that capitalism is inherently unstable or does it prove something else? Now, some people have argued uh, Jeffrey Friedman, for example, and, of the editor of Critical Review, and Brian Kaplan at EconLog, our sister site here at the Library of Economics and Liberty, they've argued, well, look, mistakes happen. People have imperfect information every once in a while. People – not every once in a while. It's, it's, it's human. People make mistakes constantly. And every once in a while, those mistakes are so large they misassess the, uh, f- the future in, in such a way that – Things turn out to be much worse than they thought, and then they lose a lot of money and things – people go bankrupt. And so in, in this narrative, uh, the narrative of, of Friedman and I think to some extent uh, Kaplan, uh, this is just – every once in a while, and Brian calls it a once-a-century mistake, you know, a once-a-century tsunami of, of mistakes. People make systematic errors, and, and we have an a, a unfortunate set of consequences as a result. Uh that's possible, of course. Um and and that the way to think about it, I what I what I like about the Friedman and Kaplan argument is is it really creates alongside the, the Samuelson Greenspan points, it really creates what is the uh the stark issue here. Did firms make bad bets because they were myopic, overconfident, stupid, careless? Or was there a set of incentives that encouraged myopia, myopia stupidity, hubris, overconfidence, etc.? It's clear that people made a lot of mistakes. It's clear ex post. Ex ante is a little harder to show, as we'll talk about. But ex post, it's clear that a lot of executives and decision makers and financial institutions took uh, gambles, made bets, took risks that turned out to be much riskier than, for example, the AAA rating that these – Assets uh, were thought to be – thought to have. So why did they do that? Why did they make such bad decisions? Why did they take on so much risk? Was it because of the inherent either animal spirits, crowd behavior, or simple mistakes that they just didn't understand the consequences? And humans being being what they are, they make mistakes – and then, of course, Friedman and Kaplan, I think, would disagree with Samuelson, certainly, about what the necessary policy response is. But let's put that to the side. Give, is it the case that the fundamental collapse of all of these institutions, Bear Stearns, Fannie and Freddie, Lehman Brothers, Citibank, AIG, did the, that collapse come about because people were stupid, myopic, and just by, by the nature of the world, the world's an uncertain place? and? They took their chances, and they turned out, it turned out badly. Or were there policy errors that led to those mistakes, that encouraged those mistakes, that incentivized what I would describe as imprudent risk-taking? So let's talk before I answer those questions or try to answer those questions. Let's talk about bias. Um, I'm biased in the sense that I have an ideology. I'm a free market guy. I'm sympathetic to the stability of markets. I'm hostile to the Samuelson argument that markets are inherently unstable. unstable. I am susceptible to the Friedman and Hayek arguments I talked about earlier. So it is natural that I'm – it's pretty easy to figure out which side I'm going to come down on. So in in the choice between are people stupid, myopic, greedy – And government has to restrain them to create stability versus, well, maybe that stupidity, myopia, greed, hubris, overconfidence stemmed from policy failures. You're pretty confident, and if you've been listening for the last two years, you know where I'm going to come down in the argument – on which side of the argument I'm going to come down on. Being a free market guy and skeptical about the power of government to regulate wisely, I'm going to argue, as you would predict – I'm going to argue that there were policy mistakes that created incentives for myopia, overconfidence, hubris, greed, et cetera, and that markets actually are still quite stable. I have not found a flaw, unlike Greenspan. So it's very easy to dismiss my viewpoint by saying, well, well, of course the host of EconTalk thinks that markets work well. He's biased and therefore dismiss what I'm about to say. And I would argue that's a mistake for not because I'm right. I don't know that I'm right. I think I've discovered some useful and interesting things, but I'm not going to tell you that I know the cause of the crisis. I think I found some interesting and useful uh, connections between policy and outcomes that I didn't know about before I started this educational experience. So I think that there's something to what I'm saying, but I don't know that I'm right. So I'm not saying, oh no, you've got to listen to me. I- I'm not biased, I'm right. That's not what I'm saying. What I would argue is, and I think this is a very general and important point, is that when we dismiss people for being biased, uh, we're making the same mistake that we're claiming that the other person is making. We have our own biases, of course. You, the listener, you have your own bias. You might be sympathetic to the Samuelson view, or you might be more on my side ideologically. If you're on my side ideologically, you're prone to confirmation bias. When you hear what I'm going to say, you're going to say, oh, of course, Roberts is right. Yeah, sure, there was there was government mistakes. It's all the government's fault. Markets are great. So you have to be careful not to over-consume what I'm about to say if you're already on my side. If you're not on my side, if you're hostile to markets or skeptical about markets and more uh, and find it easier to accept the idea that government is uh, needed to create stability, you don't want to fall into the same trap you're claiming that I'm falling into and saying, well, I'm biased, so therefore you don't have to pay attention to me. You're biased too. So when what's the significance of bias? The significance for me is you should judge, because I am biased, because I have an ideology, you should judge my evidence very skeptically. You can't just dismiss my argument because – I'm biased. The argument could be right, and you could be biased and and dismissing it unfairly without enough thought. The fundamental question is, is the evidence that I provide convincing? And because I'm biased, you should be skeptical about the validity of the evidence itself. That's a legitimate worry. Did I shade my claims? Did I fudge the numbers? Did I ignore stuff that might have conflicted with my thesis? Those are all legitimate questions to ask because a source has an ideology or bias. And that would be true of anyone making an argument about this on either side of the ideological spectrum, whether you're pro-government or pro-market. But you don't want to just say, oh, well, we don't have to listen to him. We know what he's going to say. You don't know what I'm going to say. You don't know what argument I'm going to make. Some arguments in favor of my theory might be meaningless, and foolish, in which case you should dismiss them. But some might have some merit and weight, and you have to evaluate them on their merits. It's a a form of the ad hominem fallacy to just say, well, because Roberts is biased, I can just dismiss his evidence. You should be skeptical about my evidence, but you're going to have to evaluate the evidence on its own terms. And that's true for the other side as well. So if when you hear that deregulation caused this problem or capitalism is inherently unstable and here's why can't you can't just say well that's coming from Joe Stiglitz so i know it's so i don't have to listen to that you have to you have to listen to the the evidence you can't dismiss it simply because who's making the person making the argument has a bias so i think that's a really important point the other point i want to make about bias is it has a virtue which is it forces you to look for things that confirm your bias now, if they're not true, those things, you're obviously in a very dangerous place, and if you are ignoring things that are true, you're also in a dangerous place. But it also helps you – when you have a paradigm of the world, when you have a worldview, it helps you organize your thinking about a complex situation. And as an example of this of this virtue, ha- knowing very little about Fanny and Freddie and examining what their role was forced me to discover – what Fannie and Freddie actually do rather than just saying, well, I don't have to worry about them or they're obviously the cause. Both of those views, I think, are wrong on their face, but they, Fannie and Freddie has something to do with the crisis, as, as we'll see. So I hope that digression wasn't uh, too uh, complicated. So let me come back now to the, uh, the main argument. Why? Did the decisions made by financial institutions that led up to the crisis of 2008 lead to such chaos? Why did they make those decisions? Why did they destroy their organizations, the people who were running them? Why didn't – this is a related question. It's not quite the same. Why did bad investments lead to death and destruction rather than just a bad quarter or a bad year? So if we think about other industries, um, you know, Amazon can – have bad sales because it's a recession. They don't go out of business. Uh, they do. Uh, they do go out of business if they continue to have losses year after year after year. But why were the losses of these financial institutions? Why do they lead to bankruptcy rather than just well, we made some mistakes, we made a bad investment? And to, to put this another way, uh, I was someone you may. I may have said it here on the air. I don't remember. But I was someone who said, you know, this whole housing subprime thing, and this is back in say 2007 or 2006. It's not important. It's a tiny part of of the housing market. Subprime is, and that in turn is a tiny part of the investment world. So people who are saying, oh, this subprime thing is scary. It's going to lead to problems. They're crazy. They, they they're they're just. They're, they're chicken littles. They're, the sky is falling. It's, 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 some firms might lose some money. They might make some bad decisions. We might have a recession, just like the high-tech world. We had some bad things that happened in 2001. Some firms went out of business even then, in that case, when the tech bubble collapsed. But it wasn't a, a huge, systemic, uh, horrible thing for the economy. And similarly, the subprime thing is just so small. So I was totally wrong about that. Uh, I did not understand what was going on in the investment world, which was the role of leverage. And the reason that this crisis turned out to be so bad, the reason that bad bets, bad decisions, uh, turned out to lead to such bad outcomes is because of the way they were financed through leverage. And what leverage is simply through borrowing, through using a lot of borrowing rather than very much of one's own money. So what I want to do as an introduction to the uh, answer of the questions, remember the questions are, why did firms make such bad decisions and, and why did – not firms don't make decisions, but why did the, the decision makers within these firms make such bad decisions? that Their decisions were so bad that they led to the end of storied investment banks and other um, institutions. Why did they make such bad decisions? Was it because of a natural, inherent flaw in capitalism or was it caused by something else? And then just the more basic question, which is related, how is it that that such bad decisions from such a small part of the investment world, why did that lead to, to bankruptcy why, and insolvency? Why wouldn't it just lead to, well, we lost some money on subprime, so our you know our earnings are down this quarter or this year? So the answer has to do with leverage. And then the question is going to be, and this is not controversial, everyone understands and agrees there's a consensus that people borrowed too much money. The fundamental question then is going to be, why did they do that? And that's going to get us back to our ideological question, our choice between whether it was an instability in capitalism or whether it was government policy that perverted the incentives. So if we look at uh, what happens with leverage and risk-taking under uh, when you're borrowing money, uh, what I want to do is think about, we're talking about very high leverage here. We're talking about, if you're going to invest $100, we're talking about where you might put $3 of your own money into the investment, and you would borrow 97 And that's about a 32 to 1 uh, ratio of uh, borrowed money to your own assets. Uh, Now, this game, this activity of taking risks with $3 of your own money and 97 of someone else's money for every 100 that you invest, that game is being played by every single player in this market. And what's elegant and a little bit frightening about what happened in, in advance of the crisis is that almost everybody was leveraged about 32 to 1 or more, as we'll see. So we'd start with the homeowner uh you'd go buy a house you'd buy a 100,000 dollar house you'd put 3,000 down and you'd borrow 97,000 so you'd have very little skin in the game as the expression goes you'd only have 3,000 of your own money uh the person who lent you that money would then typically sell that mortgage either to Fannie and Freddie or an investment bank like Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers or Goldman Sachs who was bundling those mortgages up together into mortgage-backed securities and then selling them or holding them. And if you were holding them, as Bear Stearns did, uh, they held many of these uh, financial assets backed by mortgages. Those investments by Bear Stearns and Lehman and Goldman Sachs, they too were highly leveraged. So you would buy $100,000 or maybe better to say $100 million dollars worth of mortgages in a mortgage-backed security, and as the investor, the investment bank, Bear Stearns, holding that asset, you would use $3 million of your assets, and $97 million you would borrow to purchase that uh, mortgage-backed security. So you are acting a lot like the homeowner. The homeowner acquired an asset, mostly with borrowed money, 97 to 3 ratio, 32 to 1 roughly, And Bear Stearns was doing the same thing. They were taking the uh, buying up mortgages bundled together using $97 of other people's money and only three of their own. Uh, Fannie Mae was actually typically doing even a higher ratio of more than 32 to 1. They were taking very little of their own assets and the rest they were borrowing in the open market. So the question then is, what I want to talk about is what are the incentives of the investor who borrows 97 for every hundred, putting in only $3 of one's own money? What are the incentives of the investor and the creditor, the lender of the money, the person who finances the 97, who lends the 97 to the homeowner or the investor? So I want to read now a short excerpt from the paper that tries to get at those incentives and takes the puzzle then to the next level, as you'll see. So remember, our puzzle is, why did things fall apart when such a small part of the housing market uh, was uh, at risk, the subprime part? And the answer is going to be because of leverage, because so much of the money used to finance these, in, these investments was borrowed. So that's going to lead to the question, as we'll see, well, why do people lend the money? So let's look at the incentives facing the... Uh, borrowers and the, and the lenders. And I use the metaphor of a poker table, a poker game, which a metaphor – when I originally started thinking about this, I was using dice, but I was talking to Paul Romer, and, and um, Paul suggested uh, – started talking about a poker analogy uh, or a poker metaphor. I think that's much better. So here, here's the excerpt from the paper. Imagine a superb poker player who asks you for a loan to finance his nightly poker playing. For every $100 he gambles, he's willing to put up $3 of his own money. He wants you to lend him the rest. You will not get a stake in his winning. That is, no matter how much he lends, how much he wins, or how much he loses, whether it's an enormous win or a small win, uh, you still just get the fixed income, the fixed interest that he promised you on the loan. That's what a loan is. So you don't get a stake in his winning. Instead, he's going to give you a fixed rate of interest on your $97 loan. Now, the poker player likes this situation for two reasons. First, it minimizes his downside risk. The most the poker player can lose is $3. Second, borrowing has a great effect on his investment. It gets leveraged, and that's where the, the return gets leveraged, and that's where the phrase leverage comes from. If his $100 bet ends up yielding 103, he's made a lot more than 3%. In fact, he has doubled his money. Remember, he only put $3 in. So his $3 is now worth $6 after the um, – the winnings. Um, why his, – his, excuse me, his, his assets are now $6. He's doubled his three by making the $3 in profit. Why would you, the lender, play this game? It's a pretty risky game for you. Suppose your friend starts out with a stake of $10,000 for the night, putting up 300 himself. That's the 3%. And borrowing $9,700 from you. And here's the key part of what leverage does on the downside. Everybody sees the upside, and this is the possibility for human frailty. We're all lured by the upside, which is, hey, if I make a mere 3%, I actually make more than that because my stake is very small. So we all understand the upside, it's the, but the downside, which is easy to forget about if you're doing well, the downside, of course, can be devastating. So if I'm, I've got a $10,000 stake... 300 of it's from me, $9,700 from you, if I lose 3% on the night, if I lose 3%, if my stake, my $10,000 goes down by 3% or more, I can't honor my promise to repay you. That's how thin the margin of error is for you, the lender, when you lend me that much money as a proportion of my investment. So if I'm leveraged 32 to 1, going back to the $100 amount, if I'm betting 100 bucks and 97 comes from you and $3 comes from me, and at the end of the night, I've lost a lot of hands and I only have 95. I've, lost, I've only lost 5%. It's pretty small. I had a bad night. It was not that bad a night. I only lost 5% relative to the 100 I started with. But I can't pay you back what I promised anymore. I'm insolvent. I can't keep my promise to you. Because I need ninety-seven to pay you back, so it's nuts for you to lend me ninety-seven to three for every hundred dollars I invest. Why would you ever do that? Down back to the paper. Well, not to worry. Your friend is an extremely skilled—that's me now in the story I'm telling. I'm an extremely skilled and prudent poker player who knows when to hold them and when to fold them. Oh, I may lose a hand or two because poker's a game of chance, but by the end of the night. I'm always ahead, and I can always make good on the loan, the debt that I owe you. Now, this poker player we're talking about, let's say he's never had a losing evening. So you feel great lending the money because you get that nice fixed return. It's very safe because the poker player always ends up ahead at the end of the night because he's so good at the game. As a creditor of the poker player, as the person who lends the money, that's all you care about is getting your money back. You don't care whether he makes a little, whether he makes a lot. You just want to make sure he can pay you back. As long as he can make good on the debt, you're fine. You only care about one thing, that the gambler stays solvent so that you can be repaid and get your money back, your principal plus interest. But the gambler cares about two things. Now, the gambler doesn't want to go broke either. He he wants to stay solvent. Insolvency wipes out his investment, which is always unpleasant, bad for his reputation, hurts his chances of being able to sit at the table in the future, The gambler doesn't only care about the downside, he also cares about the upside. As the lender, you don't share in that upside no matter how much money the gambler makes on his bets, you just get your promised amount of interest. If there's a chance to win a huge amount of money, the gambler might be willing to take a big risk. His downside is small, he only has $3 at stake for every 100 he invests. To gain a really large pot of money, the gambler will take a chance maybe on an inside straight. As the lender of the bulk of the funds, you wouldn't want the gambler to take that chance. You know that when the leverage ratio, the ratio of borrowed funds to personal assets is 32 to 1, the gambler will take a lot more risk than you'd like. So you keep an eye on the gambler to make sure he doesn't take too much risk. You watch his style of play, and that's what keeps you willing to continue to bankroll him. But suppose the gambler becomes increasingly reckless He draws to the inside straight from time to time and pursues other high-risk strategies that require making very large bets that threaten his ability to make good on his promises to you. After all, it's worth it to him. He's not playing with very much of his own money. He's playing mostly with your money. How would you respond to a gambler who takes riskier and riskier bets in that situation? Well, you might stop lending altogether, concerned that you'll lose both your interest and your principal, or you might look for ways to protect yourself. You might demand a higher rate of interest, you might ask the player to put up his own assets as collateral in case he's wiped out. You might impose a covenant that legally restricts the gambler's behavior barring him barring him from drawing to an inside straight for example. Those would be these would be the natural responses of lenders and creditors when a borrower takes on increasing amounts of risk. But this poker game isn't taking place in a natural state. There's another person in the room, his name's Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam is off in the corner, keeping an eye on the game, making comments from time to time, and every once in a while intervening in the game. He, of course, sets many of the rules that govern the play of the game. And sometimes, and as we'll see increasingly often in recent decades, sometimes he makes good on the debt of players who borrow and go bust, taking care of the lenders. After all, Uncle Sam is loaded. He has access to funds that no one else has. He also likes to earn the affection of people by giving them money. Everyone in the room knows Uncle Sam is loaded, and everyone in the room knows there is a chance, perhaps a very good chance, that wealthy Uncle Sam will cover the debts of players who go broke. Nothing is certain, but the greater the chance that Uncle Sam will cover the debts of the poker player if he goes bust, the less likely you are to restrain your friend's behavior at the gambling table. Uncle Sam's interference has changed your incentive to respond when the gambler that you are bankrolling makes riskier and riskier bets. And if you think that Uncle Sam will cover your friend's debts when the friend goes bust, you will worry less and pay less attention to the risk-taking behavior of your gambler friend. You will not take steps to restrain reckless risk-taking. You will keep making loans even as his bets get riskier. You will require a relatively low rate of interest and you will continue to lend even as your gambler friend becomes more leveraged. You will not require that your friend put in more of his own money and less of yours as he makes riskier and riskier bets. What will your friend do, the gambler, when you behave in this way? He'll take more risks than he would normally. Why wouldn't he? He doesn't have much skin in the game in the first place. You do, but your incentive to protect your money goes down when you have Uncle Sam as a potential backstop. Capitalism as Milton Friedman liked to point out, is a profit and loss system. Profit and loss. The profits encourage risk-taking. The losses encourage prudence. Eliminate losses or even raise the chance that there will be no losses and you get less prudence. So when public policy reduces the chance of losses, it isn't surprising that people are more reckless. Then the question will be, would it be reasonable for creditors – to think about that possibility in the last crisis. Did the rescue of creditors in the past increase the chances of future rescues sufficiently that creditors were imprudent, careless? Another way to say it is, did the rescues of 2008, the rescues of the creditors of Bear Stearns, the rescue of the creditors of AIG, the rescue of the creditors of Fannie and Freddie, the rescue of the creditors of Citibank, all the institutions that had their creditors rescued, they didn't all, not all the firms got rescued. Some went bankrupt. Some were swallowed up by other firms. Some were given loans to live for another, fight till another day. But in almost all the cases, with the exception of Lehman, in almost all the other cases, the creditors of institutions that made bad investments, the creditors did not pay a price. Would it be reasonable to anticipate that if you were a creditor thinking of bankrolling a risky investor in 2004, 5, 6, and 7? Would it be reasonable to expect, not necessarily plan on, but would your behavior in 2005 be influenced by the possible bailouts that actually did occur in almost every case? That's the question I want to turn to next. Before I turn to that question – I want to raise a side issue, which I'm not going to go very deeply into, but I talk about a lot in the paper. Which is, well, that's creditors. What about the equity holders? They were wiped out, and this is where the Greenspan point, I think, is fundamental confusion. Is Greenspan says, well, equity holders were wiped out. Why didn't they monitor the risk taking that their firms were, were doing, that whose shares they were holding? And my fundamental understanding this really does come from uh, Gary Stern's book, Too Big to Fail. And we interviewed Gary here. Uh, I interviewed him uh, a while back, and and you can find his podcast uh, in the archives, and I'll put a link up to it. Gary Stern with Ron Feldman wrote a book in 2004. It's important to make the point that it was not an ex-post description of the problem. It was an ex-ante before-the-fact description of the problem. Stern and Feldman argue that past... uh, Bailouts of creditors had reduced creditors' incentives to be uh, vigilant, but the more important incentive point they make, and relative to equity holders to, to shareholders, is, is is this one: in a capitalist system like ours, or what we have left of it, creditors are the watchdogs of recklessness, not equity holders. True, equity holders don't want to get wiped out. That that for sure. That's not their plan. But equity holders are typically diversified. They have their fingers in lots of pies and they want a lot of risk-taking by some of their investments so they can make high rates of return on the upside. But because creditors don't share in the upside, because people who lend the money only get the fixed amount of interest they're promised regardless of the size of the win on the upside, they only care about the downside, as we talked about a few minutes ago. They only care about Making sure that the firm stays solvent, so it 's creditors that monitor solvency, not equity holders it 's creditors who who monitor prudence and, and recklessness, not equity holders now you'd think there'd be an exception for that, which would be yeah, well, that may be true generally, but but a lot of the equity holders or the executives better way to say that I said that wrong executives had of these firms held billions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, sometimes a billion a billion dollars in the equity of their firms. They didn't want to get wiped out. Why didn't they act more prudently? And this seems to lend a lot of credence to the mistake theory. The, it just uh, was greed, hubris, myopia. It's, um, markets are unstable because look at these executives. They had everything to lose with these investments that they held in the form of stock, and they made decisions that st- let that stock be totally wiped out. So obviously this is, this is not a problem of – credit rescue isn't, it? can't be the whole story because look at the incentives that the executives faced. They shouldn't – rationally, they should not have taken such risks, and, and, and they saw their nest eggs wiped out. So I, we've talked a little bit about this in previous podcasts, and if you go to the, my paper, you'll see my t- attempt to, to discuss these, these effects on, of executives uh, and their, their equity shares. The simple point I'll make here, if you're interested, you can go read about it. I talk about both the financial aspects of this and the emotional and psychological aspects, Um, the fact that that the CEOs of Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers and AIG were humiliated by their their failures. Um, The bottom line issue is surely they paid a price. Surely the bailout of creditors – didn't let them get off scot-free. So there still were incentives that failed and therefore capitalism is unstable, blah, blah, blah. I think that argument's wrong because I think it fails to understand how the incentives and pay structure and compensation structure of Wall Street was set up to make sure that even when they, quote, lost a lot of money, they still ended up with an enormous amount. And the way I say it in the paper is, you know, heads they win. I think this is the way I say it. Heads, they win an enormous amount. Tails, they win a ridiculously enormous amount. It's not like in one case, they get wiped out. In the other case, they make a killing. In the one case, they make an enormous killing. In the other case, they make a smaller killing. And you've heard me talk about this before. Bear Stearns, CEO, uh, Jimmy Kane, he was left with a mere $500 million. It's true he lost a billion. He would rather have had one point five. Uh, Billion in assets if Bear Stearns hadn't made those bad investments, but he was left with a mere 500 million. That's not exactly uh, poverty. And I also talk about the psychological effects in in the paper as well. And essentially, he was doing the same thing. We're all talking about everybody else doing. He was gambling with other people's money. His downside was he's left with a mere 500 million. His upside is what Lloyd Blankfein of Goldman Sachs or Jamie Dimon of JPMorgan Chase were left with. They got. They got – they didn't get wiped out. They got close to the edge, made enormous amounts of compensation, and they're worth $1 to $2 or whatever. I don't know exactly what they're worth. They're worth enormous amounts. So that was the upside that Kane and Fold of Lehman Brothers, for example, were hoping for. They didn't get it, but they weren't exactly wiped out. Uh, What wiped out meant wasn't really exactly so horrible. So I would argue that the incentives they face because of their ability – to borrow other people's money and finance those investments to to do uh, extremely well for a long period of time before it blew up allowed them to take enormous sums of money out of uh, – effectively taking it out of taxpayers. And here's the, the strange uh, way these incentives work. It's easiest to see with Fannie and Freddie. Fannie and Freddie, who's also had uh, well-paid executives by the way, which I, I don't go into in the paper, but that's another long story. But Fannie and Freddie – we're typically borrowing money from a whole bunch of places, a lot of money from the Chinese, a lot of the money for, a lot of money from institutional investors, a lot of money from individuals who were buying their bonds. They were borrowing money. Fannie and Freddie were borrowing money, using it to buy up these mortgages that were high-risk. Those lenders, the Chinese and I use my dad as an example, because I know he held Fannie Mae bonds. still does, I think. Those investors who financed ultimately the, the subprime and nonprime – excuse me, subprime and regular prime mortgages of this era, those investors who invested in uh, housing, they lent money to Fannie and Freddie at very low rates even as Fannie and Freddie got more and more involved in riskier and riskier loans. As Fannie and Freddie got more involved in riskier and riskier loans, they should have found it harder to borrow from the Chinese or my dad. Why didn't they? Why didn't the interest rates that Fannie and Freddie offered investors have to go up between, say, 2000 and – well, actually goes back to 1998. But between 1998 and 2007, as we'll talk about later, Fannie and Freddie invested in riskier and riskier loans. But the rate of interest they paid to their lenders stayed very low, barely above what the Treasury paid. The Treasury has the faith uh, of the United States behind it, but it turned out, of course, that Fannie and Freddie had the good faith of the United States taxpayer behind it. So when the Chinese were enjoying above Treasury rates – They were playing with my money as a taxpayer. Fannie and Freddie were playing with my money as a taxpayer implicitly. It turned out to be explicit. It turned out that what finance the riskier and riskier loans that Fannie and Freddie made was taxpayer money. Because without that promise of taxpayer money, they couldn't have made those bets. I just want to say as an aside, I don't think Fannie and Freddie were the cause of the crisis. Although they were involved in subprime, they were not Deeply involved in subprime. We'll talk later about how culpable they are in the subprime part of this. But what is true is they did get more and more involved in riskier uh, assets between 1998 and 2003, and 1998 and 2006, even. So let's. I'm going to stop here for a moment and uh, let's try and um, summarize before we go forward because I know we've covered a lot of things. So let's let's take stock of where we are and get back on the the. Sort of track of the narrative. We start off with the question: Why did why did Wall Street and other financial institutions collapse so precipitously? What, what was the what was the driving underlying cause? Of that is it because people were careless, myopic, overconfident about what was going to happen to housing prices, and therefore just made bad bets and and just fell apart. And capitalism, therefore, needs some sort of overarching regulation to keep people from being um, so aggressive and irrationally exuberant? Or was it because of public policy that encouraged uh, people to take on too much risk? To answer that question, we said, well, the underlying – the next level of causes is leverage. People were able to finance so much of their investment with other people's money, which then leads to the question of, but why would lenders lend money to firms knowing that there was a small – any a, a very small change, 3%, 2%, 4%, a very small change in the value of the assets would leave them unable to cover their, their debt, to pay their debts. Why would lenders take on so much risk? And Then the question then is, well, were they just myopic? Were the lenders overconfident or was there public policy uh, problems? That is, did the, did the prospect of creditor rescue of Uncle Sam, which is actually what did happen, did that incentivize lenders to be less cautious? So that's the question I want to turn to next. What, is it plausible that either uh, – two ways to say it, as I said a minute ago. Is it plausible that firms anticipated the bailouts, the lenders? Did lenders anticipate being rescued? Or was it just simply they were careless, they were overexuberant. Uh to answer that question, which can't be which cannot be answered uh in, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, we can get some evidence on it. Uh w- what I did is drawing on uh Gary Stern and Ron Feldman's book Too Big to Fail, they chronicle some of the ways that public policy reduced the incentive for creditors to be monitoring risk. And an uh, additional reading of mine, which I'll also which I'll bring in here and I bring in the paper added to that. So you can go to the paper and, and look at that. I just want to – I'll give a very quick summary of it here. It's, it's its a few pages of the paper. But it basically starts in – and some of this, by the way, we talked about in uh, Bailout Nation, uh, uh, excuse me, in our interview with Barry Ritholtz of Bailout Nation, the author of Bailout Nation, where we talked about some of the history of bailouts and rescues. One point I want to emphasize is sometimes this gets called too big to fail. Uh, it's really not the right – cause of the problem. The problem is not too big to fail because we do let firms fail, uh, large firms, large financial institutions. Uh, the problem is the rescuing of their creditors. So I, I want to just, as a semantic distinction, what I want to focus on is creditor rescue. How much creditor rescue has there been of large financial institutions over the last few decades? Was it reasonable under those circumstances for that re- those creditor rescues to influence how creditors behaved in the run-up to this current crisis and the ultimate bailout that they received, most of them. Um, The history uh, goes back to 1984. Continental Illinois, uh, which at the time I think was the seventh largest bank in the United States, uh, they got into trouble along the exact same lines of the firms of 2008. They made risky investments with borrowed money. They borrowed a lot of money relative to what they put in of their own and eventually Lenders got spooked, wouldn't continue to finance those uh, ongoing bets, and allow Continental Illinois to keep rolling it over. And as a result, Continental Illinois had to go into um, insolvency, and the Treasury made sure that all the creditors got all their money back, even above and beyond what was covered by FDIC insurance. So that was the beginning In the recent decades of a whole series of creditor rescues, the saving and loan crisis being an obvious example, that was depositors into savings banks, not Wall Street large banks, but it certainly was an example of where the government uh, made sure the creditors got their money back. In that case, creditors were promised their money back, uh, which is the nature of FDIC insurance, but as uh, Stern and Feldman point out, they actually got back. Even their, all their money, even when they weren't promised, even if their investments in those, if their deposits in those institutions were well above the FDIC limit, they still got almost all their money back. I think it was ninety nine point something percent of all deposits who ended up being insured, uh, regardless of uh, whether they were above the limit. The other uh, examples that are important to point out over the intervening uh, decades were the so called Greenspan put, the idea that Greenspan would always. Uh, bail out financial markets. He would pump liquidity into the market and make sure that asset prices didn't fall, which of course would reassure creditors that they wouldn't have to worry about bankruptcy. Uh, he and uh, Barry Ritholtz in his book, and we talked about it a little bit in the podcast, gives examples of uh, after crises like the 1987 stock market collapse, how Greenspan intervened to reassure um, investors. Uh, Another famous example is the 1998 long-term capital management uh, debacle where a hedge fund, long-term capital management, uh, again did the same thing, convinced a lot of people that they would never lose money apparently or maybe not. Maybe the government standing behind large financial institutions was sufficient to get people to lend them a lot of money. But either way, people lent them a lot of money. turned out their bets were riskier than they thought. Uh, suddenly they couldn't pay back their creditors. And again, rather than letting them go bankrupt, the Federal Reserve called a meeting of their creditors to try to orchestrate a a rescue rather than a collapse. Now, this is not a perfect example of a creditor rescue because the government didn't use any money. They just forced the meeting on the creditors and tried to find ways to get them to um, allow long-term capital management to keep going. But it, it is an example of how vigilant the Fed was and government generally, policymakers in general, in making sure creditors didn't uh, lose all their money. The more interesting example that doesn't get talked about enough, uh, which I came upon, is the Mexican peso crisis of 1995. In 1995, Mexico suddenly found that they couldn't continue to borrow money, Uh, very similar, by the way, to the current uh, stuff that's in the news with respect to Greece, which is happening as we speak. Uh, Again, this is May of 2010. Uh, In 1995, Mexico found suddenly that creditors were – lenders were very wary of continuing to lend the money, and Mexico was about to default on its promises to pay back uh, people who had lent the money. Those lenders were frequently – not always, but were frequently large Wall Street institutions. And what the U.S. government did is they orchestrated a bailout of Mexico where they guaranteed uh, the loans to Mexico that would allow them to continue – borrowing without defaulting that would allow them to pay off the people who had lent them money already. And this is called a rescue of Mexico, but that's a mistake. It really was a rescue of the people who had lent them money, and I think it's very, very important to keep your eye on the ball when you think about what's going on today with Greece and as we talk about the unfolding of the crisis with respect to creditors and lenders. It's not the institution that gets bailed out. It's the creditors. Keep your eye on the creditors. For example, in the case of Bear Stearns, I think JP. Morgan Chase were their, was their largest creditor. So the, the guaranteeing of Bear Stearns' bad assets that allowed JP. Morgan Chase to buy them was really a payoff, not to quote Bear Stearns, but to Bear Stearns' creditors, JP. Morgan Chase. The failure to bail out Lehman Brothers wasn't just a punishment of Lehman; it was the, really a punishment of the people who Lehman owed money to. A lot of those were foreign banks, Japanese banks, Asian banks, Korean banks, not JPMorgan Chase. So the politics of that, you have to keep that in mind when you look at who wins and who loses from these uh, creditor rescue um, examples historically. But to come back to Mexico, in 1995, Mexico has a crisis. They can't continue to borrow money. They're not going to be able to pay back their debts that that they've promised, and they are about to default, and the U.S. government steps in and puts together a $50 billion – again, seems like a large sum of money at the time. Now we look at it as peanuts – $50 billion package to guarantee uh, new loans to Mexico so that they will not default on their existing promises. And it turns out, apparently, great. The guarantee never goes into place. Actually, the U.S. government makes a little bit of money on it, and it's called a success it's called a success because the Treasury doesn't lose money. The guarantee is never invoked. Mexico manages to, to go forward. But I think that's a very uh, incorrect reading of what actually happened. Here is what uh, Willem Buiter – I don't know how you pronounce his name, but I th- hope that's right. B-U-I-T-E-R. What what he said at the time, at the time he was a professor. He is currently uh, – Uh, He's a macroeconomist. He's currently the chief economist of Citigroup. I find that kind of ironic. Here's what he said in the aftermath of the Mexican peso crisis and the bailout of Mexico's creditors. This is not a great incentive for efficient operations of financial markets because people do not have to weigh carefully risk against return. They're given a one-way bet with the U.S. Treasury and the international community underwriting the default risk. That makes for lazy private investors who don't have to do their homework figuring out what the risks are. I'll say that again. I'm going to read that last part again. It's talking about the bailout of the creditors of of the government of Mexico. That makes for lazy private investors who don't have to do their homework figuring out what the risks are. And For me, that's the essential part of what has happened uh, in the last few years in the current crisis. Because of the prospect of a government rescue of creditors, creditors don't have to do their homework, and we certainly know they didn't do their homework with respect to the investment vehicles that were underlying the current crisis. And because they didn't do their homework, there was no one else to monitor that risk-taking, so that risk-taking got out of control. The way I put it informally in the paper, all profit and no loss makes Jack a dull boy. So if you don't have to worry about the downside, you're going you're gonna to push the pedal to the metal on the upside. Um, I give some other examples in the paper. of So that was an ex-ante warning. That was a warning that was made in 1995 of what the consequences would be of the continuing rescue of creditors. There are really only two examples where the government did not rescue creditors of a large financial institution over the last 30 years. One is Drexel Burnham, which was a criminal organization under threat of uh, all kinds of criminal proceedings, so it's not really that surprising that they weren't – I think we can call them an exception. The more interesting case is the recent example in the crisis of Lehman Brothers. So Lehman Brothers looks a lot like Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns gets rescued. Lehman Brothers gets Uh, a death sentence. They get bankruptcy. Their creditors lose a a good chunk of their money. We don't know how much. They're still in bankruptcy proceedings. And Bear Stearns' creditors all get 100 cents on the dollar. And by the way, I just want to mention that in these creditor rescues, instead of maybe giving 50 cents on the dollar, 75 cents, giving partial rescue, we always give total rescue. So in AIG – uh, in the fall of 2008, it was threatening to default on its promises on honoring credit default swaps and other insurance contracts that it had made on investments for Bear Star- for excuse me, Goldman Sachs and other investment banks. Supposedly, according to Bloomberg, in the summer of 2008, when AIG was still an independent organization, they went to Goldman Sachs and said, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to pay everything we promised you. You might have to settle for 65 $0.60 cents on the dollar, and they started negotiating. When the government took over AIG and injected the $185 billion, I think it was initially, into AIG, the New York Federal Reserve, which was essentially running AIG at that point, Tim Geithner was the uh, head of the New York Fed at that point, said, oh, no, we're going to honor all the promises 100 cents on the dollar. When asked why he did that, why didn't he honor them at less than 100 cents on the dollar? You know, there have been a number of explanations given. Uh, we didn't have time. It was we were in a hurry. We wanted to make sure markets stable. We didn't know how much room we had. If we went less than 100. So um, I would argue that was not a good idea that honoring creditors pre- promises made to creditors at 100 cents on the dollar every single time when firms turn sour is a mistake. But there's one time we didn't do it. And that was Lehman. one time the government didn't do it. So, I want to take Lehman as an example and uh, then uh, we'll turn to the housing market. So, Lehman's an interesting example. Uh, their balance sheet looked a lot like Bear Stearns. When Bear Stearns went bust in March of 2008, there were articles written, which I chronicle in the paper, uh, articles written, Who's Next? and Lehman Brothers was the obvious candidate because everyone knew that they had large amounts of. Uh, mortgage-backed securities financed by under with subprime underlying them. They also had very high leverage. They also had borrowed a lot of money. And, of course, there's – by the way, I just want to emphasize, there's plenty of fraud in these stories, in this whole story as well. Um, there's no doubt that firms – I'm not commenting on any particular lawsuit pending right now, but it's obvious that, that firms did dishonest things. I'm not going to uh, – chronicle the magnitudes of that. I don't think we know the magnitudes yet, but we do know that Lehman tried to hide how much leverage they had, had actually even more than they publicly revealed. Um, But what's interesting is that in the run-up to the Lehman collapse in the March 2008 through September 2008 period, Lehman credit default swaps, that is, what's a Lehman credit default swap? A Lehman credit default swap is if Lehman goes broke, you get money. So so, so it's insurance against Lehman going broke. When Bear Stearns went broke, the cost of buying insurance against Lehman spiked and went up a lot because people said, hey, they're like Bear Stearns. But when Bear Stearns got rescued, the credit defaults fell back down to a much, much lower level because I think people reasonably thought, well, if Bear Stearns got rescued, they're certainly going to rescue Lehman as well. So I don't have to worry. I don't have to pay as much. To to guarantee against a uh, default because it's they're not going to default they're going to get their um they're going to get their creditors honored their creditors are going to get their money but of course that didn't turn out to be true and but I think it was unexpected uh, people expected Lehman to be bailed out so when Lehman failed and markets went haywire a lot of people concluded see we made a mistake we should have bailed them out that was what caused the crisis a different interpretation which is mine is when Lehman didn't get bailed out people said uh-oh, government's not going to bail out everybody like we thought? And that's what caused the turmoil. It wasn't the fact – the consequences of the Lehman bankruptcy. It was the the knowledge that people gained about what government policy was that it was different. Uh, it was very short-lived, of course, but as they then proceeded to bail out every other creditor. But basically that sent a, a frightening signal through the financial markets that all of our expectations about what government's going to do, maybe they're not right. And yes, that would cause a big change. So it suggests that there was an expectation, and before that, that had been established by the past bailouts, certainly by Bear Stearns, and possibly by these historical events that I'm that I'm also talking about of earlier years. The other uh, there's a couple other examples in the paper of of how um, firms had anticipated rescues and behaved accordingly, imprudently. Uh, I tell a story of uh, Aunt, that. elder Haldane relates of a meeting he. Andrew Haldane was with the Bank of England. They met with a bunch of banks and they asked them, you know, what's your worst case scenarios? What are you you, uh, anticipating? What kind of reserves are you holding against those scenarios if interest rates do X, Y, or Z? These are called stress tests. And Haldane was struck at this meeting by how uh, small and modest the worst case scenario was. He said, well, why aren't you looking at really big stresses, really big? Horrible turns of event, and one banker said, uh, well, if it really is horrible, we know you'll bail us out, so we don't worry about that situation. And Haldane writes that at that point everybody looked down and stared at their shoes because the unspeakable had been uttered. And Haldane or whoever was the other person there said, well, that's not true. We wouldn't bail you all out. But of course, when it came time, they did. Um, they did it with the Bank of England. They banked, They bailed out uh, – they took over the Royal Bank of Scotland and honored their promises Et cetera, Etc. Cetera, et cetera. So I want to say um, two or three things now about these uh, the role of creditor rescue, and then I want to turn to the housing markets. And I see we're getting a little bit late here, so I, I may decide have uh, to figure out whether how much this will go into, but get into. But let me say a few things about creditor rescue generally. I don't argue and don't believe that that the executives at Bear Stern, Lehman, Goldman, AIG, Fannie and Freddie. Uh, etc., who both lent the money and who invested in risky assets with other people's money. I don't think they sat around saying, well, we don't have to monitor what's in these packages. We don't have to look and worry about what's in these investments because the government will bail us out. We don't have to be careful. There may have been a little of that, but mainly what we're talking about here is psychological. It's about the general way that people face risk and how they deal with the incentives of risk. And My claim is not that they sent her and said, well, we can do whatever we want. We're going to get bailed out. It is that the natural cautiousness of a creditor was eroded by the continual rescue of creditors uh, leading up to the collapse of 2008. That by doing that, by consistently almost always bailing out creditors of large financial institutions 100 cents on the dollar, they reduced the incentives for prudence. Not that they, you know, created just a world where people said, eh, it's all going to be all right. I don't have to worry about it." But their natural incentives to worry were reduced by the role of government rescue. That's the first point. Um, so it's really as much about not paying enough attention as it is about planning on on um, on being on being rescued. Um, I don't know what else I want to say about that. I think I'll I'll I'll, I'll say that and. Um, I want to now turn to the role that these creditor rescues played in the housing market. Oh, the other point I want to make before I get on to the housing is, okay, so we bailed on almost every creditor in 2008, 100 cents on the dollar. Maybe people anticipated it. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they were just irrationally exuberant. But if you're doubting the power of this force, of these incentives – Ask yourself how this has changed things going forward. Do you think that the persistent rescue of large financial institutions has caused them to be any less or more prudent than they were before these rescues? Don't you think it's made them a little less cautious? Don't you think it's reasonable for them to believe that they're going to get bailed out again? And of course, there's a lot of – that their creditors will be bailed out. So as a lender, you don't have to worry so much. As a There's a a lot of reform bills on the floor of Congress right now. We're not going to talk about those in any detail. But when you read about those, what you ought to look at is how much discretion do policymakers still have to bail out creditors? And if they still have that discretion, we haven't solved this problem. We have continued to encourage recklessness, and I don't know that we can – Solve that problem. That discretion problem is extremely difficult for politicians to give up. They want to be able to use discretion. Ben Bernanke wants to be able to use discretion for a hundred reasons that that are that should be uh, that that should be obvious. My simple point is, I think we have made it easier for creditors to count on being rescued by our behavior in the past. And I would argue that as a result of that, we have transferred hundreds of billions of dollars to Wall Street, and we have allowed them to finance those bonuses that they will continue to receive. And that is very destructive for democracy and very destructive for capitalism. And I talk about that a lot in the paper, but I'm not going to go into it here. Uh, Since we're short on time, I want to say a few things about the housing market. there are some on the uh, on the right who argue that Fannie and Freddie and the Community Reinvestment Act are the cause of the crisis. I don't think that's true. I think they have something to do with the crisis, as I'll elaborate in a minute. Mostly Fannie and Freddie, CRA not so much. Uh, but I, I want to make it clear they are not the cause of the crisis. They are not. There are plenty of investment banks uh, that did really stupid things that were privately run, and any explanation of the crisis has to deal with that. Uh, has to deal with the fact that Bear Stearns, Lehman, G- Goldman, J.P. Morgan Chase, and others took very risky bets that turned out to be much riskier than they had thought or at least said that they were and that they financed those with borrowed money. So to go to the housing market now, basically uh, starting around 1992, Fannie and Freddie were encouraged at uh, ever larger – with ever larger encouragement to in finance more and more mortgages from low-income people. Uh, these are not the same as subprime loans. Uh, they're, they can be, but they're not the same as subprime. Uh, Fannie and Freddie were encouraged starting in 1992 and in increasing amounts through the 90s, through the 2000s. This is both a Clinton and Bush phenomenon. They were encouraged to invest to make sure that a larger and larger portion of their loans went to low-income borrowers. Remember, they're not lenders themselves. They purchase loans from mortgage originators, making it easier for mortgage originators to finance those loans. So the mortgage originators, which are Countrywide, Wachovia, WAMU, Washington Mutual, they were intermediaries. They were the middlemen for the Fannie and Freddie uh, phenomenon. They were essentially, in a way, just filling out the paperwork for Fannie and Freddie, And because Fannie and Freddie had a government guarantee implicitly, which turned out to be explicit, because they had this implicit guarantee, Fannie and Freddie could only invest in safe mortgages, 20 percent down, certain income to um, debt ratios, et cetera. But starting around 1992, public policy from the Clinton administration and then later the Bush administration changed the restrictions that Fannie and Freddie operated under so they could make riskier and riskier loans. They did, no, they did they moved away from 20% down loans. They moved away from uh, loans that had good documentation on income. And they did also move into subprime. So on the right, we have those who say, oh, Fannie and Freddie the whole thing. On the left, we have uh, others who say they had nothing to do with it. Well, I think they're both wrong. Uh, they had a significant amount to do with it, but they're not the whole thing. And really what was driving their destructiveness were two things – the government housing mandates that required them to invest in riskier and riskier assets and the implicit guarantee they had from the government that allowed them to fund those bets with borrowed money at a very low interest rate, which otherwise wouldn't have been the case, as I mentioned earlier. So if we look at the data, and the data – have to. this is just a, an aside. I don't say – I should have said this in the paper. I didn't say it. The Fannie and Freddie data are not very good in the sense that you know, there's always some question of whether they're telling the truth. They had an accounting scandal in two thousand and three, in two thousand and four, which is an whole, I don't talk about in the paper. Very interesting episode in uh, government policy, but put that to the side. So, but what I'm telling, the facts I'm talking about now are going to be facts that come from Fannie and Freddie's uh, reported data, and also some analysis done by others in the mortgage industry. But I always wonder whether these data are accurate or not. It's um, it, it's an interesting question, or how uh, how accurate they are. But the bottom line is is for what with the data we do have it's starting around nineteen ninety eight Fannie and Freddie started to increasingly invest in uh mortgages with little or no money down uh, with less than five percent down, allowing it for it to be easier for firms to mortgage originators to to offer loans to borrowers who had very little skin in the game. the poker game we're talking about from the very beginning and so between 98 and 2003, Fannie and Freddie go nuts. They, they have an incredible explosion in activity with an enormous concomitant explosion, parallel explosion, in loans to people with income below the median, low income uh, borrowers. Um, I don't point it out in the paper, but there's actually some complexity beyond what I'm talking about to Fannie and Freddie's housing mandates. But it's not important for the story. It's, uh, it's immaterial, doesn't change anything. I'm, that we're talking about, uh, they had they had sub requirements, sub mandates, uh, loans they had to make to especially poor people. But just to keep it simple, let's talk about the loans they made to people with incomes below the median. That amount goes through the roof, and in the paper, I have charts and, and that show the incredible expansion of uh, of loan activity that Fannie, Freddie and Fannie, Freddie and Fanny. Purchase to make that possible uh, and the profits that Fannie and Freddie earned for both their shareholders and their executives' compensation uh, in the meanwhile. And, of course, the people who lent Fannie and Freddie the money as these portfolios they held got riskier and riskier, uh, how Fannie and Freddie continued to borrow at very low rates even though normal market forces, even though normal prudence should have required them to offer higher and higher uh, rates of interest on their fixed income, uh, the loans they were that they were um, the money they were borrowing from the Chinese and others. So during this period, ninety eight to two thousand and three, Fannie and Freddie expand enormously, and a big part of that expansion is a uh, activity to low income loans. Now that pushes up the demand for low income borrowing. The availability of easy credit from Fannie and Freddie for both low-income people and for low-income people to purchase homes with little or no money down starts to push up the price of housing uh, through d- the demand – normal demand factors that you'd expect. So and, – and I have lots of quotes in the paper from Fannie and Freddie, uh, mostly Fannie executives, where they brag about – they're going to get rid of this down payment restriction that's making it hard for people to buy homes. They're going to be more aggressive. They're going to partner with Citibank, et cetera, et cetera. So basically they conduct a public campaign under pressure, uh, which I think they enjoyed. They they didn't um they didn't oppose it. They have a very powerful lobbying effort. I've always wondered why is it they have such a powerful lobbying effort, but they have all these strictures about buying low income loans. Well, I think they liked buying low income loans. That allowed them to make more money. That justified higher payments for their executives. It's the same thing, again, the investment banks are going to be doing in a few years in the story. But between 1998 and 2003, the enormous expansion into low income lending comes from Fannie and Freddie, not particularly subprime. It's just low income lending. Subprime at this point is starting to grow, but that's not what the story is. The story is, is that Fannie and Freddie are pushing up the demand, helping the demand for housing to expand in low income areas under pressure from Congress. And they're able to finance that because of their implicit guarantee. That in turn pushes up the demand for housing. That in turn pushes up the price of housing. And the price of housing between 1998 and 2003, particularly in low-income neighborhoods, I don't chronicle this as explicitly in the paper as I could. You can find it in the Case-Shiller Index Indices. But low-income, uh, the low-income parts of American cities have the biggest appreciation in, uh, during these years. That, in turn, makes subprime imaginable. That, in turn, makes it imaginable to lend somebody money to buy a um, a house, someone who's got uh, very bad credit. Because you think, well, they only have 3% down, but if the asset goes up 10%, they suddenly have skin in the game. So it's suddenly not a big deal. It's not so bad. I'll take a chance on that, you can imagine. You can imagine a firm taking a chance on... Uh, lending money to a uh, low-income borrower who has bad credit or imperfect documentation. You can imagine that if the asset price is rising. It's still very risky, but that rising asset price, which is created, I think, in large part by the push of Fannie and Freddie. It's also pushed, caused by monetary policy, something I'll come back to later. Uh, monetary policy, tax policy also plays a role, as I chronicle in the paper. Monetary policy, tax policy, and Fannie and Freddie's enormous increase in credit availability to low-income borrowers over this time period, pushed by Congress and the Clinton and Bush administration uh, administrations, that starts to cause a large increase in the price of housing, which in turn makes the subprime market much more attractive than it was before. There had always been a subprime market, but it starts to explode in the 2002-2003 period I'm arguing as a result of Fannie and Freddie's uh, funneling enormous sums of liquidity into the uh, housing market, particularly at the low-income level. That in turn makes uh, it very profitable for the investment banks to get into the subprime mortgage-backed security market. So a lot of people – Paul Krugman, for example, says, oh, Fannie and Freddie had nothing to do with the crisis because the crisis is 2004 to 2006, and Fannie and Freddie are not very involved in housing, and they're not involved in subprime. They're not involved with housing because they had an accounting scandal. They had to withdraw, pull back, reduce their efforts, et cetera. turns out it's not true. They do reduce a little bit, but they're still a dominant player. Where, where the left is right, where Krugman is right, when he talks about the role of Fannie and Freddie, is that it's it is true that while they – uh it is true that that the bulk of the subprime investment came from the investment banks, not because of any government housing mandate, not because of the implicit guarantee to Fannie and Freddie, but I'm arguing because of the implicit guarantee to those investment banks. That they knew, not literally, but they could expect – investors could expect the possibility of credit or rescue. That allowed the investment banks to finance their plays in the mortgage-backed security market with borrowed money at very low cost and a higher rate of return relative to what it would be if people thought the creditors could go bankrupt. So we're way out of time. Um, What I go on to show in the paper is how um, the regulations called Basel II, which are financial regulations that were supposed to go into place in 2008, were actually put into place much earlier uh, on uh, commercial banks and investment banks, how they made AAA-rated investments, uh, easily leverage. What Basel II did is it said basically if you want to – and other regulations of the day – if you want to invest in AAA, you can leverage those 60 to 1 because they're safe. They're AAA. Uh, B is now going to be much higher. Uh, you're going to have to have much more, cap, much more capital of your own behind them. You can't leverage those as much. So what Basel II did and the regulations that drew on Basel II in the United States, what they did is they – Shifted the leverage ratios. They shifted the capital requirements. They basically said, "Triple A, you don't need very much capital at all because that's that's treasuries and other safe things." And you're going to use uh, lower uh, leverage ratios for riskier items. This is considered, you know, rational. This seems wise. Safe things, you don't need as much capital. But of course. What that did is, because of the opportunities to use leverage for AAA, that created an enormous demand for AAA. There isn't much AAA to go around. There aren't that many AAA-rated companies in 2001 or 2002. So what did financial markets do? They created some new AAA. They created the tranching system of mortgage-backed securities that allowed new forms of AAA to just explode in availability. And uh, that wouldn't have mattered. If there weren't creditor rescue, because there would have been some prudence, there would have been some oversight, there would have been some monitoring. But because of creditor rescue, that monitoring disappeared, or at least, excuse me, was reduced, I should say. So I want to now turn um, all those details I, I describe in, in, um, in the paper, encourage you to read it if you're interested. I want to now just – I want to close with my doubts, with what do I think might be wrong about my thesis, So the first thing I want to say is, you know, it could just be my opium greed. Uh, James Hamilton has a nice post. I'll put a link up to it where he shows how in 2008 there was this sudden panic uh, that short-term lenders said, whoa, 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 whoa. This, this could be a mistake. These guys could be going out of business. So that phenomenon of panic, it's consistent with my story, right? It could be that they hadn't been paying much attention, there's no certainty about the rescue. You don't know that creditors are going to be rescued. So when you're playing this game of musical chairs, of passing off your wrists to other people, suddenly you realize, well, wait a minute, what if there aren't enough chairs to go around? Right? You can think of creditor rescue as kind of like always putting that extra chair there so you get to stay in the game. But what if the government doesn't come forward with that chair and I'm left standing? I better take out my money now just in case I don't get my money back. So that would be the explanation that's consistent with my narrative. But maybe that's wrong. Maybe they just were myopic, they weren't paying attention, and when they finally did pay attention, they realized that the stuff that they'd been financing was much riskier than they thought. So that's, that is one uh, possibility. The other possibility uh, that I would be worried about, if, about with my narrative is monetary policy. Maybe that's the whole thing. Maybe without the low interest rates of 2002 to 2004 that John Taylor talk, uh, talks about in his book, Getting Off Track, and we've talked about with him on this podcast Maybe maybe that's – without that, it wouldn't have mattered. It just wouldn't have exploded in the amount it w- that it did. There wouldn't have been the liquidity available. So that's a possibility, and I, I worry about that. Uh, in the paper, and as I just discussed, I point to a lot of examples of Fannie and Freddie um, being a contributor to the crisis by pushing up the price of housing, especially in low-income areas, and making the subprime market more profitable than it otherwise would have been. Maybe the magnitudes aren't there. Maybe they're just not – maybe they were, an effect, not a cause. Maybe there was other stuff going on in the mortgage market. So, for example, to give you an example of this kind of thinking, they bought hundreds of billions of dollars of subprime securities. People who say they had nothing to do with the subprime story wrong. They had a, a lot, something. Uh, it's a question of degree. But they were a non-trivial part of the subprime market. Maybe twenty to thirty percent of the purchases of of subprime mortgage backed securities were made by Fannie and Freddie over the two thousand and four to two thousand and six period. but if they hadn 't bought them, maybe other people would have bought them maybe that's not important maybe there was such you know they claim there was such a thirst for them, so maybe they weren 't really that important uh, and finally i 'd say the other reason I doubt my narrative is um Maybe there's stuff that's going to come out that we just, I don't know about, haven't discovered, people haven't researched it, and when it comes out, we'll realize just how destructive something was that we don't know about now. Um, the abacus deal that's, uh Goldman Sachs is under investigation for with the SEC uh, raises a lot of interesting questions. I've been struck by how complicated that deal is for those sitting outside to understand. Forget about the legal issues, just the moral issues of what was actually being pr- packaged and sold there. It's very hard for a non-insider to figure out. Maybe when we know more about those things, uh, the Magnetar story is another story you may have heard of. Uh, may- maybe it will turn out that, that there's some things going on in those markets that we didn't fully uh, understand now, and, and when we do, we'll, we'll learn more. Um, there's going to be a lot of research and debate over these issues over the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years. We will never know with certainty what caused the crisis any more than we figured out what caused the Great Depression, and how we get out of it. People of differing ideologies will create their own narratives. I think my narrative has some virtues. I've learned about a lot of things, a lot of incentives that I didn't, uh, hadn't been aware of. It's not the whole story, but I hope you've learned something about the underlying cause that at least contributed to the crisis. I know I've learned a lot thinking about these issues, and as I say in the paper, I'm sure I have a lot more to learn. Uh, if my story is correct, what we really have... Uh, on Wall Street, unfortunately, is not uh, capitalism but uh, crony capitalism, and I close uh, my conc- my conclusion in the paper. My concluding section uh, starts with the following, which I'd like to read. An unpleasant but unavoidable conclusion of this paper is that Wall Street was and remains a giant government-sanctioned Ponzi scheme – Home buyers borrowed money from lenders who got their money from Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and banks that borrowed money from investors who expected to be reimbursed by the politicians who took that money from taxpayers. Almost everyone made money from this deal except the group left holding the bag, the taxpayers. There was an old saying in poker, if you don't know who the sucker is at the table, it's probably you. We are the suckers, and most of us didn't even know we were sitting at the table. Many people have placed the current mess at the doorstep of capitalism. But Milton Friedman liked to point out that capitalism is a profit and loss system. The profits encourage risk-taking. The losses encourage prudence. Government policies have made too many markets one-sided. Because of implicit government guarantees, the gains were private. The losses were public. The policies allowed people to gamble with other people's money. And by rescuing the creditors of Freddie Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, Bear Stearns, AIG, Merrill Lynch, and others, policymakers have further weakened the natural restraints of the profit and loss system – This isn't capitalism. It is crony capitalism. Well, we'll find out over the next decades if this narrative holds water relative to others. I'm sure we'll be arguing those of us who think that markets are still very reliable with those who disagree. And I look forward to continuing the dialogue with you.